Hello, everyone, and welcome to our first RISE radio podcast. Joining me today are members of the RISE Risk Adjustment Policy Committee. I'm delighted to introduce Sean Creighton, Vice President of Federal Policy at Humana, Dave Meyer, an expert on risk adjustment policy and a member of our RISE Advisory Board, Gabriel McLamory, the Health Policy Consultant for Florida Blues Marketplace Business, Josh Weisbrod, the Vice President of Risk Adjustment at Network Health, it's a regional nonprofit payer in Wisconsin, and Howard Weiss, who works in the Government Relations Department at Emblem Health, a nonprofit health plan that's headquartered in New York City. Um, given all that, the our panel is just introduce is really speaking on behalf of themselves and providing this for informational purposes only and not representing their companies. Um, so to begin today, we're a week into the Biden administration, our new administration, and wonder if um, Howard, maybe you can lead us off to talk about sort of what direction we're going in um, and what do you see as some of the big issues confronting the administration right now? Um, thanks, Eileen. Be glad to and really do encourage my uh, colleagues to weigh in and um, you know even suggest that I'm uh, wrong on what I say. Uh, but you know I think one can't help but be struck by the differences uh, in the first week of the Biden administration from uh, the administration that preceded it. And I think that's gonna have a real effect on how we in the healthcare community, how we working on Medicare Advantage issues um, and, and healthcare issues, um, uh, you know, writ large, uh, we'll have to address some of the things that are likely to come out of Washington. Um, in my mind, sort of the first issue that the Trump administration healthcare uh, folks tended to ask is how can what we are doing help consumers be more educated, um, have more information in their hands? And while I don't think that the Biden administration is averse to that, I think that the first questions that will go through their mind, number one, does this action reduce inequities uh, to communities of color? Number two, does this action protect consumers? And number three, uh, probably less relevant for the Medicare Advantage discussion, but does this action expand access to healthcare and low and middle, to low and middle income Americans? Um, in my mind, if we think about the Biden administration approaching uh, their role, um, both as uh, uh, the regulator of our industry and obviously having a key role in how um, Congress, uh, the issues that Congress will raise, that that may help us think about ways to be as compelling as possible to address all the issues that we're dealing with. And also maybe as a way of thinking and anticipating some of the uh, issues that it's likely to raise for us as health plans, as Medicare Advantage plans. Um, I know that that was very ethereal, um, but I think uh, that's the intent of the first question, um, but be very interested if uh, my colleagues have a reaction to that. Yeah, thank you, Howard. This is Sean. You know, I think it, that laid it out very well. I think one thing I would add, perhaps, is that there right now there's a macro context here, right? Uh, Macroeconomic and healthcare or health crisis, if you like, um, which are clearly 
have the attention of the administration and are their clear focus. So obviously vaccination is a clear focus and the economy is a clear focus. Um, and I think those two things have implications for us as health plans. Um, obviously on the vaccination side, you know, there it's critical, I think, that we show good faith and, and get involved and support that effort as, as much as possible um, and do everything in our control to, um, you know, to help the administration and help uh, the nation with that. I think on the economic uh, front, it's really interesting because the actions that the administration is going to take and will certainly attempt to take to inject economic stimulus come with uh, consequences down the road and maybe even immediately in terms of pay-fors, right? So the question is, how are these uh, initiatives going to be paid for? If you think of a 1.9 trillion stimulus package, you know, however likely that may be to pass, um, the issue becomes how is it paid for? And that's sort of directly related to some things that had been happening anyway. Notably, you know, the trust fund is um, predicted or expected to run out by 2023 or four was the last estimate, I believe. Um, you know, it goes up and down a year or two every time they redo it. But, uh, you know, um, so clearly there was strain on the system even before this, there's going to be even more strain now. And to me, um, that leads to a question of what's the pay for going to be. And that really becomes critical when you think about the narrow majority that the Democrats have in the Senate. I mean, in fact, it's evenly split. I mean, the majority is caused by the vice president, um, you know, and the mechanisms by which they can pass legislation um, in order to pass the stimulus or to do anything else that the Biden administration wants to do. So to me, there's a straight line between the overall economic situation, the options that are front on front of Congress, and the mechanisms that are available to Congress to deal with, uh, you know, passing legislation and so forth. And that has implications for us because what it puts on front of us is a situation whereby some things that may be favorable or unfavorable uh, to the industry may pass through reconciliation in order to pay for some of these other initiatives. Um, and the final point I would make there is that, you know, the majority is very narrow, which also, but the Democrats control the administration and that also opens up the possibility of action through regulation. Um, now, those aren't papers in a budgetary sense, but still uh, could have huge implications for us. And the administration has the option right now to go either direction, legislation or regulation to achieve its goals. So we have to be on the lookout for both <laughs> sort of simultaneously and to watch the interplay between the two. And with that, I will pass it to my colleagues. Yeah, I just, just thinking about what you both have been saying, you know, I, I wonder, you know, have, have you guys heard any, um, anything from people at the agency, uh, you know, uh, kind of 
in the line of wanting to advocate for change on the policy side, Sean? I mean, because you can, to your point, right? You, you can imagine you can imagine change coming multiple directions, and I, I'm just I'm just curious, you know, you know, if 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 anybody's heard of a queue up there or whether we just guess that it might happen because I, at this point, I guess that it might happen. I, um, you know, don't have better color than that, but, but I would expect that there's probably a list that, that uh, a, a lot of senior folks have um, that, that they would like to see, uh, they'd like to see refined uh, and, and maybe some changes. I think that if anybody has Smart bureaucrats realize the constraints on their role and probably, and even if they'd share such a list or viewpoint with any of us, it would be out of place for us to share that, you know, with the public. I would say that if you work at many of the folk, you know, I used to work at Sosio, the folks I worked with and what we did, you know, to put the ACA, the marketplaces together, they believe in what they're doing. They believe in the benefit of what they're providing. And uh, coming out of the Trump administration, I don't think we saw, you know, I, I think there's been attrition in a lot of those agencies, but I don't think there has been churn. I don't think we've seen a uh, Trump loyal uh, staffers enter. I think we've seen Trump loyal politicals exit rather quickly. And I think that they, that when this administration prioritizes um, access to healthcare, they will bring the experience they've gained over the last four years. So for example, uh, one of the things we've already seen is an expansion of open enrollment uh, is a priority. Washington Post talked about this yesterday. I'm, I'll launch into it when we talk about individual market later on this, but the, what I want to go with this right now is, you know, when you talk to the, 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 the staffers, they will tell you the best way to, to get that done. They will probably have a layer of nuance that they didn't have in what is stopping people from enrolling, stopping people from using subsidies, hurting mid-year enrollment, and that, those kinds of issues that they didn't have at the end of the Obama administration. And I think one of the odd benefits, the silver linings of a year like 2020 in, is that it was an extreme year. It was a crucible. And so we saw the system strain. So for example, massive layoffs, huge shifts in people's income and how you know a structure like the ACA responded or didn't respond to that, didn't pick people up in the middle of the year. You know, that is that reveals a lot of weaknesses or occasionally strengths in a program um, that wouldn't have been revealed if we'd had a steady you know, if, if things had been more even keel since uh, the end of the Obama administration. Thank you, Gabe. Um, Dave, you know, not to harp on this one too long, uh, let me put a maybe a slightly different spin on this. So I was there through a couple of changes of administration in CMS. And so I would say at, at a high level, um, just to reiterate what Gabe said, you know, the civil servants, even the most senior ones, recognize their role in the system. And their role in the system is to carry out the will of the elected, <laughs> uh, the elected uh, representatives of the people. Now, that being said, 
do they have a list of policy options that they might believe are preferable, you know, all other things being equal, right? And I think the answer to that is clearly yes. And to give you, you know, but the general ethos is the new administration comes in, they lay down the priorities and the civil servants execute those priorities. Now, they may do that more wholeheartedly or less wholeheartedly, more options, less options, whatever, but that's the way it rolls. However, if you take areas that are of concern to us where people who are in the administration and will continue to be in the administration, the civil servants, um, have an interest that they will continue to push across administrations. I think Rad V, for example, is a perfect example of that. You know, there is in CPI in particular, a body of opinion about Rad V that has built up over years where they've taken a certain position, you know, on Rad V itself, on extrapolation, on the fee for service adjuster. Um, heretofore, they've been pretty dug in on, on that position. They're in concert with the DOJ, um, who also have a position. That is the kind of area where civil servants are unlikely to change their thought process across administration and are likely to continue to advocate for one policy versus another. But there are lots of areas where, on the other hand, the civil servants really either regard it as a purely technical issue or you know, or a an issue of which option is best, right? Given a number of trade-offs. So just to give you an example where I think that might be at play in relation to Medicare Advantage, if you take the re the recent rate notice where CMS threw out there, well, maybe we'll trade off fixing the rate book for the part A and part B issue if we get some movement on coding intensity it was basically it was basically almost a straight quid pro quo sort of clause in the rate announcement that's an issue where i think the senior civil servants would look at that and go you know it's partially a technical issue it's a payment accuracy issue they're not vested in the answer but they understand the trade-offs and will strive to get to a reasonable trade-off between the different policies, right? right? So, yeah. so I think it just depends on some things people feel more strongly about, maybe around program integrity, uh, beneficiary protections, and some issues are just purely technical payment issues, and they're they're more. It's more a situation of what's the trade-off. That's how I would look at it, having sat through a number of these transitions, you know. Yeah, it's just it's just such an interesting time, Sean. Yeah, th you know, thanks for for adding that color and, and and Gabe as well. I mean, you know, you think about the the Milliman and Avalier studies in in 2019. I, I think Avalier came out initially in June and then and then updated in November. I think Milliman's was in October, looking at the COVID impact for for revenue in 21 as, as a for instance, right? I mean, you know, suggesting um, in, in many cases a huge span, right? I think the Milliman one was, I think, somewhere between one and nine percent um, was was their range. Um, Avaliers was three to seven, and then I and then I have a note that they updated to six to nine um, in, in the in in the November one. I mean, so you know, you just you would assume that that 
with that much range and 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 the the, the impacts being differential, right? That there are some health plans that are will be more impacted that have members, let's say in urban environments, high social determinants of health, more impacted than others. That that there has to be there has to be sort of an ongoing conversation in, in 21 to look at that and 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 correct for it is is just my thought. So I just I'm assuming that this is going to come in an iterative way. Um, and 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 that as data as data becomes more available and more clear, like how did fourth quarter end um, across the industry? The Milliman and Avalier data, I'm pretty sure, was pre um, even the November work on Avalier is probably not including any fourth quarter at all. Um, maybe even not very much third quarter. So um, you know. It, it, they're just you'd assume would have to be a, a, a tremendous amount of opportunity and need for for policy um, to evolve in, in 21 as as COVID impacts become more clear. Perhaps I know that our, you're all going to be talking about the panel is going to be talking at Rise National about this in, in March. It might become more clear, sort of where the where the administration is headed with its policies. But I wonder if there's any in particular that you're watching that you think may have a reasonable uh, expectation that will be pushed through. And maybe let's talk some of the regulatory issues that Medicare Advantage plans should be sort of keeping their eye on in the upcoming year. Sure, and I would ask Howard to address the, uh, partly as a response to what you just said, Eileen, and uh, you know, maybe incorporate some thoughts on what Dave um, pointed out there, you know, so, you know, Howard, do you have any thoughts on, on uh, what Dave just said? And then we can jump to the regulatory issues. Well, I mean, I would say that it, it you know, I've been concerned about the industry's, um, about the industry's approach to the risk adjustment data collection issues. And I think that those issues, those concerns might even be more magnified in the new administration, which although, you know, and I'll just say I'm part of a nonprofit company, so we really don't do public announcements of our financial position, but understanding that many of the recent announcements, although maybe less favorable than projected, have still been pretty favorable, that I would think from a a Democrat's perspective that those arguments are still going to be difficult for the industry to make unless that we can show an effect on low-income communities and communities of color. And I would think that we all, as an advocacy strategy, try and think about it in that lens. Um, so I, I guess that's my reaction. You know, in response to Eileen's question and then others, please chime in. I, I definitely think, Sean, that you've raised the issue of risk adjustment data validation, the RADB audits. I think that's likely to be a continued focus of this administration. Um, you also referenced the idea of coding intensity. As we all know, there's a statutory uh, minimum coding intensity adjustment of 5.9%. That is, That doesn't mean that the administration couldn't go higher than that or that Congress couldn't go higher than that. And, there have been past work, I think, on the Medicare Advantage, either by MedPAC or uh, by Dr. Rich Kronick and others, which suggests that that number could be higher, that there's data that justify that could be higher. I think that this administration might be more willing to consider those types of options. And then I think as we 
start thinking also about star ratings and, and understanding that the arguments, first of all, that um, that low income that plans focusing on low income communities might be adversely affected by the star rating system. Uh, those arguments might have more currency in this administration, plus the potential to have additional measures added that are specifically uh, tailored to services provided to individuals in low-income communities. Yeah, thank you, Hart. If I might suggest, I think there's three, let me put it in maybe four buckets, okay? So the four buckets would be changes to the benchmarks and rate setting mechanisms, changes to risk adjustment, changes to the quality bonus system, and other regulatory and oversight issues. So maybe those are four buckets that we could think about. I think on the uh, benchmark side, there's some threats and some opportunities. You know, MedPAC has suggested going to blended benchmarks between a national and local benchmark. Um, that is generally not favorable, particularly the way that they have suggested it be done. They've met it even less so by some of the technical uh, nuances that they've built in there. Um, however, they've also suggested that the rates be set based on both Part A and Part B, which would uh, offer a counterbalance. But more broadly than that, I think we need to start wondering and thinking to ourselves, will this administration actually go get a little radical given the need for savings and maybe even push for competitive bidding, you know, um, which is essentially a way of, it's not competitive bidding in some ways, if you include fee for service, isn't really that awful different than blending the benchmarks. You know, it's a, they're all different ways of getting to a new benchmark. They're just different permutations and that could have some major implications hasn't been on the table for a while um so there's the benchmarks then there's risk adjustment what can they do there obviously hard has spoken to coding intensity there have been proposals in the past to change the way the model is calibrated that could uh, have very differential impacts by organization and across the board um there's moving the risk adjustment system to an encounter data-based model, right? Um, that could happen. Um, and then there's the quality bonus uh, system, which MedPAC has suggested be mid-budget neutral, um, which would be have a, just major, major implications. Um, and on that one, and I'll, I'll kind of stop there, but just a little comment on the point uh, Howard made about you know the quality bonus system negatively impacting low income and that sort of thing. So to put a finer point on that, the system as it exists today, it is it has shown it has been shown to be very difficult for plans that enroll significant numbers of duels or proportion of duels to get their star ratings up to the level that other plans. And there's yeah. all sorts of discussion of that and so on and so forth. If you think about that, and I think this is where Howard was going, at a more systemic level, what you have to say is, do any of these other changes potentially mitigate that? Because if it if they do, right, and, and there are ways in which they can do because there's interactions between changes that you make in the payment system, then that becomes more 
favorable to a democratic administration. So, for example, if you could make some kind of benchmark change that simultaneously pushes more money towards plans that have higher proportions of duels or that sort of thing because of the benchmark change. It may not be, it may not have been intended to do that, but that may be the consequence. And that also helps those plans with lower star ratings that are predominantly dual, then that becomes a more favorable policy than some other alternative in this administration. And those are the kind of things we'll have to think about as we look at potential policy options and combinations of policy changes to dig into the data and sort of ask that question in terms of social determinants and in terms of disparities. Who does this help? Who does it hurt? And we'll have to get pretty nuanced, I think, about that in making whatever policy arguments we decide on to the administration. Thanks, John. Um, I wonder if we can talk a little bit about some of the regulations on your radar. Josh, I don't know if there's anything in particular that you're watching um, that you think that we should be concerned with in the upcoming year. I, Love to get your feedback too. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we've covered a couple of them. The things that are on our radar and our highest priorities are probably the impact of COVID on revenue and what that means. So, um, you know, Dave mentioned the Avalier and the Milliman studies. We've reviewed those pretty closely. You know, we think from our market, we're probably looking at one and a half to 3% um, uh, deficit from premiums in 2021. And CMS hasn't addressed that in any way, um, back to Dave's comments earlier. So they've extended the sweeps deadlines for data submission, but that doesn't really impact the overall revenue that's available. So I'm kind of waiting for that other shoe to drop and to see what um, this administration would do, if anything. I think Dave's right, it's gonna be iterative, um, but right now it's probably our main concern from a revenue perspective. The other thing that we've talked a little bit about that's a concern for us as a regional payer who's gone through uh, three contract level RADVs so far is the final adjudication of historical RADVs and what that means going forward. And, you know, we've talked a lot about the deficit here and the, uh, the need for additional revenue to help alleviate some of these healthcare disparities. Will this administration have some pressure or feel some pressure to, uh, to use the RADVs to, uh, you know, recoup some funds and to sort of reduce overall uh, plan costs to the administration? So, you know, a lot of those things are up in the air. And from a financial perspective, especially for a small plan like ours, it's very difficult to continue to accrue for those things or anticipate what that impact's going to be um, without having clear guidance from CMS. So that's really our, our main concern today on the MA side. Yeah, and to that second one, Josh, I would just say, you know, from a budgetary standpoint, the probability they will do something depends on the likelihood that they can score savings from it. So, you know, to the extent and this all gets to baseline, right? What is in the budgetary baseline? And if there is a number in the baseline that they can make bigger by taking legislative action, you know, that becomes a higher probability or if there's no number and they can generate one. Um, but it really, you know, it's a game, really, in a sense. It's all about scoring the savings. So if they can find a legislative mechanism that allows them to score savings, that easily, that becomes a higher probability item. With RADV, it's a little hard. 
it's not impossible to see that, but it's hard under a reconciliation mechanism for me to see that. It's it's sort of complicated because under reconciliation, you know, you have to show that it, you know, does something in terms of increasing the deficit or decreasing expenditure or whatever. It has to be pretty concrete. So, um, you know, so just... But it's it's definitely out there, and maybe Howard could uh, comment on that one. Um, you know, I really believe in the long run. What we have to do is get a much more structured and predictable approach to RADV that actually would allow uh, for scoring and for uh, people at CBO and other places to understand what the impact of this is on the industry. So they can score it and say, here, here's what it is. But what we need to do is manage that and manage the size of that sort of um, issue for us. Because right now, it's just completely unpredictable, is my take. Yeah. Um, yeah or, I agree with Sean. Thank you. That, uh, it's completely unpredictable from our side, too. And, uh, you know, when you look at the, the finance folks on our side, uh, you know, we have these large accruals on the books for these audits that we can't predict. Um, and until we have further guidance from CMS on what they're going to do with this, um, it makes it very difficult from a financial standpoint. So, um, sorry, Howard, you were gonna jump in? Uh, really and say nothing um, other than, uh, you know, I, I, when, I, when I think about RADV, I, I guess I hadn't thought about it in terms of a legislative and scoring perspective and very much appreciate that perspective that you bring, Sean. I mean, for me, um, having spent 15 years of my life uh, at AHIP uh, in Medicare Advantage advocacy and uh, seeing articles uh, uh, really emphasizing uh, the quote unquote overpayments to Medicare Advantage plans uh, that could otherwise be captured by um, you know, stronger RADV audits. I would think that that's a message that would, might appeal to this administration. It's not like it was a message that didn't appear to the previous administration and the previous administration got the ball rolling. Um, so I, I think that there's a very nice headline in it for the new administration. If it were to become more active in that front, God knows, I hope they don't. Um, but uh, that's all I was going to say. Uh, I, I, uh, I apologize, my coworker is barking in the background, but, um, you know, I, I, really interesting stuff, everybody. And, you know, you, you, I would add to it, um, you know, so, we, so we've been talking about revenue impact and, and, and the, potential, the potential variation across the industry, social determinants of health and, 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 and duels. And, and, you know, I, I'm very interested in this issue of care avoidance in, in, in uh, 2020. Um, there's some interesting data that's come out um, suggesting that one in five um, seniors uh, in, in survey data have suggested that they've absolutely avoided care. Mm -hmm. Dental looks like it's bubbling to the top. Uh, but then regular checkups, treatment for ongoing conditions are coming in right after that. And then if you go down a couple more items, you get to stuff like screening and surgical. 
And so, you know, like I can imagine, you know, whatever the right numbers are, you know, Josh, you were saying, you know, one to 3% maybe for your organization. Like, I, I think there's going to be variation. I think that's the big story from the Milliman and the Avalier data. And, mm-hmm. and, 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 and for all the reasons Sean and Howard and others talking about social determinants, duels, you know, the, the differentials that different organizations are going to embrace. I think that this across the board one in five number is not going to be smoothed either. I expect that there's more care avoidance in some parts of the country than others. And so, you know, you're going to have potentially bigger revenue fall-offs with organizations that have larger increases in avoided care from 2020 hitting in 21. So I, I just, you know, I, I appreciate everything everybody's saying here. And I, I don't, I'm far from knowing the answer, but I, I, I have real, real angst about the growing concern in, in, in 21. Well, one thing I would say about that. So first of all, we have some data due to OACT or at least data and predicted data. So in the rate announcement, OACT has indicated that the fall off in utilization in fee-for-service in uh, 2020. They're projecting it to be, and I'm going to round this up, around 10%. And that's a mixture of, uh, I think it was a 12% decline on the inpatient side and about an 8% decline or 9% on the outpatient side and physician. So I'm just rounding it to 10. Um, And then for 20, 21, which we're now in, they're predicting a 4% decline in utilization on the fee-for-service side. So on fee-for-service, we've got a sort of a benchmark number that they projected into the rates, and then they're projecting this big rebound in 2022, which is what led to the rates being higher. Um, That being said, there's another crucial point about what you just said, Dave, and we cannot be unaware of this, is the impact of all this on providers. Right, the providers are the ones out there on the ground doing the work, treating people. They're the ones whose revenue, unless they're in a risk sharing arrangement or something like that, is being dramatically hit by this. And we have to look hard at ourselves, you know, with all due respect to the fall off and risk adjustment revenue in 21 and maybe 22, and say, as an industry, do we have an obligation to shore up providers? I'm just putting it out there. And because they are our long run partners, they are the ones that are on the ground doing, you know, doing the work and implementing the programs that we might design and or whatever. So so there's another aspect of this, and that leads then to a sort of macro view. You know, the providers, we're not the only ones who are going to be putting pressure on the administration. The providers are too, as you and successfully, as you can see with the recent fee physician fee schedule update that was achieved three and a half percent, I believe, um, by the docs. Um, you know, so we're we're not the only ones in this game. And it's really um, important to realize that and that, you know, whatever duty we have to our own organizations, we may have a duty to the broader system as well, you know, and we need to think about that too. Thank you all. I. Um... I'm interested to hear where your thoughts are in a couple of months at Rise National. I know you'll all be at the conference to talk more about this. Um, Before we sign off, I wonder if there are any final thoughts, things we didn't get to that you think that the audience should 
sort of keep on their minds as we enter the next few months. Did we cover everything? Not anywhere near everything, but that's why we have another 19 minutes to talk about individual market after Dave and Sean take a break for lunch. <laughs> we will be in our second podcast dealing with the um, more conversation with Gabe and Josh. Um, so yeah, one thing, Eileen, before we wrap up, I apologize, I was on mute there. Um, yeah, I don't think in this call we've talked enough about the some of the more oversight and regulatory um, aspects and the operational aspects of what will happen under the new administration. I think clearly everybody sort of ought to at least be thinking about the probability of more oversight and stricter oversight, um, possibly rollback of some of the flexibilities that we've been given, although, you know, that that remains to be seen. I mean, there's generally a pretty favorable bipartisan view of Medicare Advantage and what it can do. Um, we didn't talk a lot about the potential for the administration to do, how can I say it, unconventional or innovative things through CMMI demos. So I would say, and and certainly here we haven't focused on drugs, which, um, you know, uh, we always like to talk about drugs. So <laughs> the um, so I think there's some areas, there's some more areas for us to explore that are maybe a little bit outside the ambit of the risk adjustment uh, policy committee, but um, definitely more oversight, more operational oversight, that kind of thing, and some potential around uh, you know, roll back of some of the flexibilities that we've been given um, are possible and maybe areas for exploration in another venue. Thank you so much, Sean and Howard and Dave and Josh and Gabe. I appreciate your time today. Um, I will see you at the end of March at Rise National. Hope our listeners will join in and I hope you all have a great afternoon.